Please take your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 11. We'll be reading verses 25 through 32. This is God's Word. Paul writes, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient, in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray again and ask him to help us as we study his word. Lord, you tell us in your word that there are some things in the scriptures that are hard to understand. Lord, this passage is one of those. And so we come dependent upon your Holy Spirit to illumine our hearts, our minds, to help us to understand, but not merely understand, but to apply, to live out this truth. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for this glorious book that proclaims to us your saving grace. We ask that you would be glorified this morning, that we, your people, would be built up, that those who do not know you would come to saving faith by your grace and by your power. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I was a child of the 80s, which means that when I was growing up, I watched a lot of G.I. Joe. And at the end of each episode of a G.I. Joe cartoon, there was these short vignettes that were essentially public service announcements, highlighting some unsafe or wrong action or attitude that, that children were often prone to. And so thanks to the G.I. Joe characters endorsed by the National Safety Council, right? We learned not to lie, not to fight. We learned not to give up. We learned not to ice skate on frozen ponds. We learned not to take medicine without an adult being present. We learned not to touch fallen power lines. We learned not to run if our clothes caught on fire. And my personal favorite, we, we, we learned, I, mean, I cannot say this without laughing, we learned not to hide ourselves in abandoned refrigerators when we were playing hide and seek, right? It's beautiful. You can go on YouTube and find all 13 minutes of the vignettes, those, those, those short vignettes. Do it. I encourage you. Right? Or make your children do it. Sorry. All these stories ended in the same way. The, the group of children that were a part of them would say, now we know. And the G.I. Joe character would say, y'all know? And knowing's half the battle. Right? Now we know. And knowing's half the battle. Now, as I was reflected, re reflecting on, on that, the, the, that, that the cartoon, 
And, and honestly, as I've thought about it multiple times over the course of my lifetime, right, I've realized that I wasn't just hearing this sort of earworm motto for, for, for healthy childhood living, right? I was actually, all of us, if we were the Lords, were actually becoming rather good theologians. Right? Because as Paul's going to tell us in the next chapter, we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. Right? Paul wants us to know the truth because it is the truth that enables us to be saved. It's the truth by which we are sanctified. But as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. You can know a lot of truth in your head, but if you don't apply what you know, if you don't use what you know, if, if your knowledge doesn't change the way you actually live and relate to God and to other people, then what's the point? Knowledge puffs up. Truth is for life. And I thought about those words of G.I. Joe, even as I studied this text and prepared this sermon, because of what Paul says in verse 25. Look at it. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers. He didn't want his readers to be ignorant of the truth. Rather, he wants us to have knowledge. He wants us to be able to say, now we know. But he doesn't want that knowledge merely to be knowledge for the sake of knowledge, right? Just for the sake of knowing it. He wants us to use our knowledge. And so this morning, I want us to try to answer these two questions. What does Paul want us to know? And why does he want us to know it? And I use the, the word I want to try to help us to answer these questions because this is a difficult passage. It's a, a much debated passage. And so I'm going to do my best to explain to you what I believe that it means. But as always, I encourage you. And uh, we, we all want, we may not say this often enough, but we encourage you here at Parish Church Presbyterian Church to be Bereans, right? To go and to, to study the scriptures on your own, right? To, to make sure to see if the things that you hear from this pulpit, from our Sunday schools, from our Bible studies, make sure that, that these things are the truth, right? Go and, and be Bereans and study God's word. So first, what does Paul want us to know? Well, you see it there in verses 25, 26. Paul says, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. Now, when we hear the word mystery, right, we tend to think, don't we, of something mysterious, uh, something either beyond our comprehension, right, beyond figuring out, some puzzling, hidden, uh, mysterious thing that we, have to, that we have to figure out using our Sherlockian reason. There were religions in Paul's day, though, that, that used this term mystery to refer to uh, sort of secret teachings that only the initiated would come to learn. But, but Paul doesn't mean the word mystery in either one of those senses. No, Paul uses this word to, to refer to something that, that formerly was concealed in the mind of God. And so it, it's beyond unaided human reason to figure out. But, but now, having been formerly concealed, it has been revealed. God has made it known so that all nations, not just a secret few, but all nations might know and understand. It was no longer hidden, but God had made it known. Flip over a page or two in your, in your Bibles to chapter 16, to, to verses 25 and 26, and you'll see Paul giving this definition uh, e even more explicitly. 
He's, he's giving his closing doxology, and he says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations. That's how Paul is using this word mystery, something that was concealed and secret, but now has been made known, now has been revealed. So that's what a mystery is. That's what Paul wants us to know. But, but what exactly is the mystery? Right? What's the content of this mystery? What has been concealed but now revealed? Well, it's, it's what Paul has been telling us all through chapter 11. And he says it plainly in verses 25 and 26. I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers, that a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. This is what Paul wants you to know. Now, almost every phrase in those verses is debated. As I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, most commentators take these verses to mean that, that God's hardening of Israel is only temporary. And, and that once the full number of, of the God's elect from among the Gentiles have been saved, then God will stop hardening the Jews. And the vast majority of Jews who are alive at that time will believe in Jesus and will be saved. And part of the reason why this position is held is because folks understand the word until in a particular way. They understand the word until to refer to a point of origin, right? The earliest point, the earliest time at which something can happen. It's like when you're telling your children, they've come home from school and you say, look, you can't play outside. You can't watch TV. You can't do whatever you want to do until you've done your homework and practiced the piano, right? You're saying to them, once these conditions have been met, then something else can happen, right? Then a new set of circumstances will come into play. So it's a point of origin. That's how most folks understand the word until there. But that's not the only way to understand the word until you see. And I'd argue it's not the best way to understand it in this context. Sometimes until doesn't refer to a point of origin, but to a point of termination, to a goal, right? To, to the point to which something is aiming. And there is no change of circumstances afterwards, or, or there is no change of circumstances even being commented on. So take these examples. In Genesis chapter 28, verse 15, God tells Jacob, I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Now, is God saying there that after he has done what he's promised, he's going to leave Jacob? Of course not, right? I will not leave you until I've done what I have promised you. No, what he's saying is I am going to be with you, Jacob, the whole time that I am accomplishing the goal of doing what I have promised you. Right? Or take 1 Timothy 4, 13. Paul writes this, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. Now again, is, is Paul saying to Timothy, look, once I come, you don't have to worry about preaching and teaching and reading God's word. No, of course Paul's not saying that. Right? He's saying that, that, that Timothy should keep doing these things the whole time while he's waiting for Paul to arrive there in Ephesus. Or take Acts 22, verse 4. Uh, Paul says that he persecuted Christians. As he's recounting his testimony, he persecuted Christians until death. Right? 
Now, the point that Paul's making is not that once they died, he stopped persecuting them. Although, of course, that happened. They're dead. There's no longer persecution needed. Right? No, but his point is he persecuted them to the termination of their lives, right? To the end, to the goal. Like, he was trying to kill them, and he did. Okay? So, so the word until, I guess the point I'm trying to make is that word until doesn't by itself determine the state of affairs after the goal is reached. And oftentimes it's not even referring to any state of affairs after. That can only be determined by context. So what's the context here in Romans 11? Well, Paul tells us the context is the partial hardening of Israel. Partial here doesn't refer to a temporary status, but to the fact that a part of Israel has been hardened by God. We've seen this, haven't we? Over the past couple of weeks, a part has been hardened, but the elect have been and are being saved. The, the text never tells us explicitly that this hardening of a part of Israel will stop. And so I'm persuaded that, that O. Palmer Robertson in his book, Israel of God, is correct. Rather than the, the phrase, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, rather than that implying a, a new beginning after a termination, rather it's teaching the continuation of Israel's partial hardening throughout the age, all the way up to when that termination point has been reached, all the way up to when the fullness of the Gentiles has come up, has come in, all the way up to the end, when Jesus returns. Let, let me give a, an illustration to hopefully help explain this better. Think of it this way. Think of it as you're streaming a TV series, you're, you're reading a book, it's a long series, a long book, and it starts out really good, and then it gets really boring, right? And you're talking to a friend who's maybe read the whole book or watched the whole series, and he says this to you. He says, yeah, it's boring until the end. Now, he could mean one of two things, right? He could mean it's boring up until the very last episode, and then it's amazing, right? It's boring until the end. When, when the end comes, then it's amazing, right? Everything changes. Or he could mean this. It's boring until the end. It's boring the entire way through. Like, don't even watch another episode. It never gets better, right? It's boring until the end, all the way through the end. I want to suggest that it's that latter sense in which Paul is using that phrase, until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, the hardening upon a part of Israel will continue up until the point when the fullness of the elect from the Gentiles comes in. That is when Jesus Christ returns, when the end comes, that partial hardening upon Israel will continue. But this reality, this truth is anything but boring. Because look at what Paul says there at the beginning of verse 26. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now, some of your translations may read this. And so Israel will all Israel will be saved, which again kind of lends you to think of this sort of temporal sense. And then at that time, right, once the fullness of the Gentiles just comes in, then all Israel will be saved. But that's not what it's saying. And the ESV captures the Greek much better than some other translations when it writes this, in this way, in this manner, thus, God is going to save all Israel. Paul is writing about how God is going to save his elect. He's writing about how God is going to save his people. He's not looking forward into a, a future beyond the fullness of the Gentiles coming in. No, he's looking backward into the past from the perspective of the Gentiles having come in. He's saying, look, there's going to be a partial hardening happening upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. The whole way Paul here is re recalling 
God's great plan of salvation of his people that we've seen in the past weeks. And he repeats it, doesn't he? There in verses 30 to 32, he writes this, for just as you, you Gentiles, were at one time disobedient to God, but now received mercy because of their, the Jews' disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Now, you read this text, you hear Paul speak of all Israel and, and having mercy on all, and, and maybe you scratch your head and you think, is Paul teaching universalism? Is Paul saying that every single person without exception is going to be saved? And of course, the answer is no. Right? Paul will be contradicting himself throughout this whole book. Right? But what Paul's doing here is he is using the word Israel in two different ways, isn't he? We saw him do this in Romans 9, 6, when he says, not all Israel is Israel. Right? Not all ethnic Israel, not all ethnic Jews are, are spiritual Jews, spiritual Israel. Right? Paul's doing the same thing here. In verse 25, he says, Israel, a partial hardening has happened to Israel, is referring to, to ethnic Jews. But in verse 26, he's referring to spiritual Israel. Right? All Israel, all of God's elect will be saved in this way, in this manner. Now, again, another point of debate, it's possible to understand Paul is meaning God's elect from Jews and Gentiles together, all Israel. Remember what we saw last week, that, that, that Gentiles come into Israel, right? They are grafted into the one vine. But, but I think it's better to understand all Israel as referring to ethnic Israel. Why? Because in the way that, that verses 28 through 31 explicitly uh, set Israel over against the Gentiles, it seems that that's the way that we should understand the, the language of, in this way, all Israel will be saved. Either way, the point is essentially the same. It's this, as Paul quotes from Isaiah chapter 59, Jesus, the deliverer, has come from Zion. He's an Israelite, and he's come to deliver his people from the power and the penalty of their sins, to banish ungodliness from Jacob, he says, and to take away their sins, to fulfill the covenant of grace by offering himself on the cross, dying for the sins of his people. And it's this mystery that Paul wants us to know, this glorious manner in which God is saving the fullness of his elect in these last days from the Gentiles and the Jews. And what's the mystery? Again, throughout this present age, up to the point that this present age is done and over, while the fullness of the Gentiles are coming in, there is a partial hardening upon Israel. By Israel's rejection of Jesus, the Gentiles are being grafted in. But by the mercy shown to the Gentiles, Jews are becoming jealous and are believing themselves in Jesus. The fullness of Israel is being brought in slowly but surely, but it's being brought in now, as Paul says. In this age, they are receiving mercy as God opens their eyes to see that Jesus is the Christ. He is the only Savior. And in this manner, in this way, all elect Israel will be saved. That's the mystery. That's what Paul wants you to know. That's what's been revealed. And as you think back over these last two chapters, you remember at the beginning, Paul talking about the great sorrow of his heart, the unceasing anguish that he had over so many Jews rejecting Jesus. You remember he spoke in chapter 10 of, of his heart's desire, his prayer to God was for his fellow countrymen, the Jews, to be saved. 
Don't you see what Paul is telling us is that the comforting answer to his sorrow, the, 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 the fulfillment of his heart's desire is found in the reality that the word of God has not and will not fail. That, that, that God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. That they are being grafted back into their own olive tree, as he said last week. Even now, God is having mercy upon Gentile and Jew alike. And now you know, this is the mystery that God wants you to know that he has given to us from the Apostle Paul. So if this is what Paul wants us to know, why does he want us to know it? Well, he wants us to know it in a nutshell because he wants us to be humble and to be confident in our evangelism, particularly our evangelism to Israelites, to Jews. Look at verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. Lest you be wise in your own sight. Paul is continuing the theme that we saw last week. He doesn't want the Gentiles, you and me, to be proud and arrogant toward Jews especially. He's alluding here, of course, to Proverbs 3, verse 7. Do not be wise in your own sight, in your own estimation. He's going to repeat it in chapter 12, verse 15, as a, as a command. Right? How easy it is to think ourselves wise. To think ourselves, in the words of, of Job 12, 2, we are the people and wisdom will die with us. Isn't that a great line from Job? Job is saying that to his, his friends. Oh, you are the people and wisdom will die with you. It's so easy to think that about yourself, right? We have it all figured out, right? We have all the answers and particularly have all figured out, right, about the Jews. And we don't need God to tell us anything because we see, we see what's going on. Right? But Paul says, no, I don't want you to be wise in your own estimation. I don't want you to have it all figured out yourself. I want you to have it figured out because God has revealed his truth to you. How easy it was for the Gentiles of Paul's day to, to pridefully assume that there was no more hope for God's covenant people of old. No more hope for the Jews. God had cut them off completely. And that's why Paul wants them to be aware of God's plan, of bringing in the fullness of both Jew and Gentile. No, Paul says, no. They've only been hardened in part. And God is saving all of his elect from Israel through the preaching of the gospel, just as he is saving all of his elect from the Gentiles. But Paul, the Gentiles might have responded. They're our enemies. They hate us. And look what Paul says there in verse 28. Yes, as regards the gospel, they are your enemies. They're enemies. But remember the plan of God. They are enemies for your sake so that the door of the gospel might be open to the Gentiles. And he goes on to say, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. So don't look down on them, he's saying. Don't hate them. But as he'll tell us in chapter 12, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. Humbly show them the love of Christ. Humbly speak the gospel, even to Jews, that they might be saved, that you might be the instrument of their salvation. So Paul wants us to be humble, but he also wants us to be confident in our evangelism. See, that's what he's aiming at here. He's assuring the Christians in Rome that Israelites, that Jews are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For, as he says in verse 29, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. That is, God has not forgotten his covenant people of old. The promises that God made with Abraham 
and to his offspring. They continue to be applied to Abraham's offspring, not just spiritual offspring, spiritual Israel, like we are Gentiles, children of Abraham through faith, but even physical offspring who become true spiritual offspring through faith in Jesus Christ as well. That's why Paul here again repeats this plan that we read in verses 30 to 32. He's wanting to give these Gentiles in Rome the confidence that God is at work, not only amongst Gentiles, but amongst Jews as well. Don't forget how Paul began this book. What was his thesis statement? Do you remember what he said? I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God unto salvation. And what's the next line? First to the Jew and then to the Gentile. At the very beginning, Paul is wanting to get across the gospel needs to go forth to Jew and Gentile. It is the power of God unto salvation. Paul wants to urge these Roman Christians and us to evangelism, particularly of the Jews, so that more of them will be saved as well. If we are unaware, if we are ignorant of God's plan revealed here in this text, then we'll be prideful or we'll lack confidence that he wants to save the Jews. And either one of those things, either pride or lack of confidence, will lead to no evangelism, to arrogance. But because God the Father has chosen both Jews and Gentiles, because God the Son has given his life on the cross to purchase the salvation of Jews and Gentiles, because the Spirit of God regenerates both Jews and Gentiles, because the triune God desires to have mercy on all without distinction, we go in confidence to the lost. We go knowing that God is at work calling his elect from both Jew and Gentile to himself. I close with a story from the book of Acts. You, you may not remember, we probably said this at the beginning, but you remember the, the book of Romans was written from Corinth while Paul was ministering in Corinth. Well, when you go to the book of Acts, chapter 18, you, you read the account of Paul's ministry in Corinth, the beginning and sort of the continuation. And it's fascinating to go back and read chapter 18 in light of what we've seen here in Romans 9 through 11. Because what you see is this, Paul arrives and he first goes to the synagogues. He begins, the text tells us, reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath day, trying to persuade both Jews and Greeks, testifying that Jesus was the Christ, Jesus was the Messiah. But eventually, we read that the Jews oppose Paul, they revile Paul. And so Paul shakes the dust off his feet. He says, your blood be on your own heads. You have rejected this truth. I'm gonna to go to the Gentiles. But do you know where he goes? The text says he goes to the house right next door, the synagogue, right? He goes to the house right next door to the synagogue. And then the text tells us that Crispus, the synagogue ruler, the leader of the synagogue, like the, the, I guess the senior pastor of the synagogue, he's converted. He becomes a Christian. And then the text tells us in Acts 18 that, that many other Corinthians become Christians too. So here's Paul. He's, he's bringing the gospel first to the Jew. But then he goes to the Gentiles, just in the way that, that we've seen in Romans 11 unfolded. There's this hardening upon Israel. And so that's for the sake of the Gentiles coming to faith. But in the same moment that Paul's preaching to the Gentiles, the ruler of the synagogue, Crispus, is converted. God is saving Jew and Gentile. And then this happens. In Romans 18, verses 9 and 10, God appears to Paul 
in a dream. And he says, do not be afraid any longer, Paul, but go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you. Why? For I have many people in this city. What is God saying? He's saying, Paul, you're going to be opposed. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to be beaten, mocked, laughed at, scorned. But my elect are here in Corinth from both Jew and Gentile. And so preach the gospel confidently, humbly. Preach the gospel to Jew and to Gentile, and I will save all Israel, all the Gentiles that I have chosen from before the foundation of the world. Brothers and sisters, there are God's elect here in the Jackson metro area as well. And so let us, with the knowledge that we have of what God is up to, what God is doing, what his plan is to save both Jew and Gentile, let us go forth with humility and with confidence into this world to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ crucified as we celebrate this morning. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we thank you for your grace, for your goodness. Lord, we praise you for the wonder of your plan that you have revealed to us that you are saving your elect Jews while the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. Oh Lord, we pray that you'd give us courage, boldness, confidence to go forth and to open our lips and our mouths to preach the gospel to the lost. Father, we ask that you would bring in your chosen race and use us as your instruments to accomplish that goal. Now, Father, we thank you for your son, for Jesus Christ, for his life, for his death, even for his interceding for us now in heaven. Now, Lord Jesus, thank you for loving us unto death. We pray this in your holy name. Amen.